Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. Hey, everybody. I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I mean, I'm in this band with these guys. They're famous for their beards. And I promise you, I could beat them in a beard growing contest, hands down, if I wanted to, but I don't because I don't like having facial hair. Now, I've tried every razor blade on the market, and I finally found the best one for me, and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. They have a shave gel that smells really, really nice. My wife loves it. But what I love about the razor blade, in addition to those things, that it's a weighted handle. I love a weighted handle. Guys, if you uh, shave with a razor, if you don't do the electric razor thing, if you're like me, you like it old school, a nice weighted handle feels really good and it helps you get the best shave you can. Another thing that's great about Harry's is they ship the razor blades right to your door. So I think it comes out to like $2 a blade. It's really affordable. They bought their own German blade making factory. They keep costs down, but yet high quality. All purchases are 100% quality guarantee. If you don't like your shave, let them know. They'll give you a full refund. 1% of proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. For those of you that know me, the connection between politics and music will seem natural. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. I believe the personal is political. And so the mission of our show is to make sense of this unprecedented political landscape and share that knowledge so we can all use it to inform decision making in our daily lives. I'll be doing this the best way I know how, by speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and socially active musicians about what's at stake not just in November, but in this seismic moment of cultural change. The absence of a normal campaign allows us to ignore the horse race and focus on fundamental questions about how we can bring people together and how we each make decisions that affect everybody. We'll also highlight those doing incredible advocacy work to support freedom and fairness in the election and in their communities, reminding us that citizenship isn't a box we check once every four years. But the answers only really matter if you vote. So as states define their 2020 election plans, we'll bring you the necessary information to ensure your ballot can be cast and counted with confidence. So are you ready for the politics of truth? I am. Let's get started. Brent Coburn, welcome to Politics of Truth. It's good to be here. It's good to hear your voice. Man, you are uh, an old friend of mine, and I'm so glad that you agreed to take the time to speak with us today. 
I think it's important for us to talk to you because over the past couple months, we've spoken with journalists and musicians and we've gotten a sense of how their lives and how doing their jobs in the time of COVID has changed so dramatically. You worked for FEMA, you worked for the Department of Defense, you worked in the Obama administration, you worked on every presidential campaign from, was it 2000 to 2012? You have a great sense of how federal response works. So for our listeners, could you maybe talk about how you see the current federal response to the COVID-19 pandemic playing out from here, from where we are right now? Sure. So, um, like I said, fantastic to be here. And it's really good, uh, I think, as you said earlier, to hear a friendly voice. Um, you know, it's been interesting to be on the outside looking in at this response. And, and I'll tell you, to start, there are two things about what's going on right now that that are true and that can be true at the same time, right? So one is, this is an incredibly difficult response. So this is unlike anything that any recent uh, administration has dealt with, both in terms of scope, complexity, the geographic impact of this. We're used to dealing with things that are, are much more bounded geographically and bounded time-wise. So this is a really hard problem set. So that that is, A, you gotta start with that. The second thing, though, that is true is that, um, at least at the federal level, the response to date has been uh, woefully inadequate, right? And, and that's just, you know, that's not a political statement. That's a factual statement. If you look at kind of past disaster responses as measurement, some of the very basic things that you would expect to see, you have just have not seen out of the federal government. So, um, so, so what are some of those things, right? And what is the responsibility of the federal government in a situation like this? Um, and it's, it's important to understand that, you know, there's been this kind of conversation that I think the president has really driven about, you know, where responsibility lies for a response. So is it the, the, job of the president? Is it the job of the governor, right? Who's in charge in these situations? When a response works well, there are many people that you should be holding responsible at the same time. You should be holding your local uh, officials responsible. You should be holding your state officials responsible. You should be holding your federal officials responsible. In a, in a, in a well-run response, they're all working together as a team and they're all responsible for different things and have different authorities and powers that they bring to the table to help protect the safety and well-being of their citizens, right? So so this isn't as if one person does it well and one person does it poorly. It all has to work together as a team. So if you, if you buy into that construct, then you have to think about what is the responsibility of the federal government? Well, they should be doing a couple things, right? And we've seen this work well in the past. Uh, Hurricane Sandy in, in your home state of New Jersey was a great example of this, right? Where you saw the state uh, with a Republican governor that was in charge of certain aspects of the response. You saw the federal government uh, with a Democrat, President Obama, who I worked for, uh, in charge of other parts of the response. So the federal government, they should be, number one, making sure that states have everything they need to respond, right? So they there is a, a an ability to coordinate resources that only can happen at the federal level, right? Two, the president and everyone who works for the president should be using their platforms to share um, accurate and actionable information with people, right? So, you know, there is this power of the bully pulpit that is especially important. Um, You know, I think we've both had experiences where we've gone out in public and you've seen people not following very basic public health um, uh, instructions right now. Well, the president has a platform every single day. The administration has a platform every single day 
to remind people that that's an important thing to do, right? So that's something that they can do. But a lot of the authorities, the things like setting these public health restrictions actually sits at the state level. So you need to have a federal government that that um, respects what it should be doing and concentrates on doing that well. We all experienced Katrina. It seemed like an abdication of federal power. And then you have in the next administration, uh, in Obama's administration, you have Hurricane Sandy. And the response was the exact opposite. And in fact, you had a Republican governor literally embracing a Democratic president, which could maybe that doomed Chris Christie's presidential aspirations. But now you have a Republican president who uh, seems to be willfully defying the recommendations of his own administration. So what kind of a message does that send to the public? And how does it impact the people at FEMA or CDC who really are on the ground trying to help the states? You know, it's an important, uh, in some way, the most fundamental question about the job that's being done at the federal federal level. And it's a question that has real long-term impacts on how this is going to go, right? We're going to be living with COVID-19 for the foreseeable future. Um, and in some ways, and, and I don't think, you know, it almost seems against the DNA of our current president, but the largest mistake I think they're making is they're viewing this as a political moment. Right. And the best political approach to disaster response is to not worry about politics. Right. I worked for this fantastic guy uh, at FEMA. He was the, um, the director of emergency management uh, for the Obama administration for all eight years. His name was Craig Fugate. You may have seen him on TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got, he's from Florida. Really interesting guy. He was actually trained as a firefighter and then became an emergency manager. He may be the only person uh, in the history of politics that was both a Jeb Bush and a Barack Obama political appointee. So he ran state emergency management for Governor Bush in Florida uh, and handled a number of hurricanes at the state level before he was tapped by uh, President Obama to come up and run FEMA. And, you know, working for Craig was a fantastic experience. Um, He taught me a lot. You know, one of the things he used to say was, you know, the best way to get good press is to do a good job. Right. And it seems like a very simple idea. But if you make sure that the response runs well, then you're going to score the political points you want in the long run. And and from a political standpoint, it actually gives you an opportunity to go out and show your value to people that might not agree with you politically on other issues. Right. So I think there's a real missed in a way by being totally driven by politics. This administration is missing a real political opportunity. Right. To show that they're competent, to show that they care about every American, to show that they can do what they want to do. Now, operationally, you talk about the difference between Katrina and Sandy. And look, you know, we had the um, we had the um, value of having learned a lot of lessons from Katrina. Right. There was a lot of work uh, through the post uh, Katrina Emergency Reform Act, which was a huge effort that was done by Congress afterwards uh, in conjunction with the Bush and then Obama administrations to learn lessons. And one of the things that became uh, really clear was this idea that the role of the federal government should be making sure that states have what they need to get done, the things they need to get done. So the closer you are to the emergency, the more you're going to know what needs to happen. So in many ways, in Katrina, we weren't directing from on high. We weren't from Washington trying to manage what was going on in New Jersey, but we were making sure that Governor Christie had everything he needed 
to help support the people in his state. And and this can get very operational. And these are the things that I don't see happening in this administration. You know, the first thing we would do when there was, say, a looming hurricane. Hurricanes are really interesting uh, disasters because you know they're coming, so you have a little bit of a heads up. We would deploy a FEMA employee into the state emergency management response center where that hurricane might hit. And they weren't there to tell the state what to do. They were there to take requests from the state and then funnel those back up to FEMA headquarters in Washington. And that's something that changed between the W. Bush administration and the Obama administration. It's something that we leaned into a lot, right? So those positions may have existed. The other thing, and and um, there's this great quote, um, uh, I think it's by a gentleman named Peter Drucker, who was a kind of a guru of management, who used to say that, um, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So you can have all these plans and you can have all these structures and strategies in place, but if you don't have a culture that supports the mission, you're just not going to be successful. And and I think one of the things, again, I learned from Craig is that the most important aspect of a operational culture in a disaster is trust, right? So the state has to trust that the federal government has their back, no matter what political party they're from. The, the mayor on the front lines who's having that same relationship with the state has to trust that the state's going to be there for them. That trust doesn't exist under the Trump administration. And it's because of decisions and, and ways they've operated that have nothing to do with disaster response. They've broken down that trust, both with the states, but also internally, right? So, you know, um, this is a physical manifestation of, a, of an operational principle, but, you know, you, you actually didn't see President Obama out talking every day during large disaster responses. He pushed out experts, right? The job of the president is to set the tone, right, to set the direction and then have a team around him or her that, that they trust to go do the work, right? So Craig was empowered to go run FEMA and then report back to the White House if there was something he needed or if he had some strategic question, right? It wasn't as if there were people sitting around in the West Wing making the operational decisions every day. And, and I'm afraid that's the system that um, that the Trump administration seems to have in place. And it's, it's, like you said earlier, it's leaving a lot of the professionals that know how to do this on the sidelines. I'm, I'm sure it must be just so disheartening. There are people that have trained their whole lives to do this that are being cut out of the of the response. Um, and God bless them for showing up every day and doing the best they can under these circumstances, but it must be frustrating. And we've seen this not just in this disaster, but we've seen it in uh, in almost every aspect of the federal government from the the State Department to the Department of Defense, another organization that you spent a lot of time working with. When we talk about disasters, you know, we're so familiar with hurricanes and we, we see them so frequently as with fires. Uh, and those are natural disasters. But then there are man-made disasters like oil spills, for example. Uh, and then you have a pandemic, which um, it's suspected that it's probably not man-made. But but what what's the difference between dealing with a hurricane or a forest fire versus a oil spill versus a pandemic? Well, you know, look, they, they all have unique characteristics, right? But, you know, a smart emergency manager will try to learn from different experiences and then apply those in, in new environments, right? So, um, you know, uh, both a hurricane and a, um, a earthquake, for instance, 
wipe out massive amounts of housing. So if you can just learn how to rapidly rehouse people, you can apply that across different disasters. So you need to kind of understand the contours of what's happening and then solve the problems that, that arise from it. You know, most disasters that we're used to dealing with, either natural or man-made, kind of fit a, a pattern. And in many ways, it's such a common pattern that we've built our systems around it. And we've actually built the psychology of disasters around it in a way, right? It's kind of the lived experience that we're all used to. And it can be a hurricane, it can be a terrorist attack like 9-11, but the rhythm of it is something very bad and catastrophic happens. And it usually happens in a day or a couple days. And then there's kind of, um, there is destruction or, or negative impacts that are in its wake. And the federal, state, and local governments kind of descend on the problem and, and quickly respond. So that's what we call the response phase. And in that phase, what you're trying to do is just meet the basic needs of the people that have been impacted. So do people have medical care? Do people have access to housing? Do people have fuel? You know, kind of the, the stuff you need to get through the day. You quickly then move into what we call the recovery phase, which is, okay, we, we've taken care of the basic needs of people. And that response phase, that's really where Katrina broke down, right? Like people weren't able to meet basic needs. But even if you do that well, you then have to quickly move to the, the recovery phase, which is, okay, businesses have been impacted. How do we get kids back to school, right? All of the kind of long-term impacts. And then eventually that starts to build into what we call the preparedness phase, which is, okay, how do we get ready for the next one of these? How do we not not just build back, but build back in a way that makes us better positioned because something bad's going to happen again, right? So you saw this, I think, done very well. Um, Sean Donovan, uh, who was the HUD secretary and then the head of OMB in the uh, Obama administration, was point on this part uh, in many ways for the Obama administration. It was like, let's not just put the beach back together in Asbury Park after Sandy. Let's actually rebuild the infrastructure so that if there is flooding again, the flood walls are higher or there's more mitigation, right? And it becomes a cycle. And people emergency management know this kind of response recovery preparedness cycle. The problem with this disaster is it doesn't fit that cycle because it's not as if there's a bad thing that happened and then we, we'd start to recover from it. And you see, you know, look, I think when you, when you hear people talk about wanting to reopen the country or reopen a state, you know, I think you have to parse out that there's kind of two flavors of people who are who are taking that position. There are clearly people that have a, a political motive, and you should just put those to the side um, because they're going to have they're, they're When you have a political motive, facts don't matter, right? So put them to the side. Then there are people that you know genuinely have concerns. I know we all have concerns about the economic impacts, about their livelihoods, and are looking for a way to get back to a place where they can address those needs. And they've been trained to think, you know, you take these southern states that are used to dealing with hurricanes. It's like, okay, the bad thing happened. Now let's move on and try to try to dig out of this hole. In this instance, it's as if the storm is still going, right? You can't have people come back from being evacuated from a hurricane if the hurricane is sitting over the town and still dumping water, right? For two years, possibly. For two years, possibly. So in many ways, you know, it reminds me a lot. I worked in the federal government during the Deepwater Horizon response uh, in the Gulf. And it reminds me a lot of that, where there was just oil gushing from the bottom of the ocean. We, you know, we could see the well. We had a video camera on it. 
And until we could cap that well, we were really in a in a uh, a status of mitigation, right? And that's a little different from re- from recovery. It's what can we do to decrease the impacts of this oil coming out of the bottom of the ocean um, while we try to cap the well. So we had teams working in parallel on just the the physical act of stopping the oil. So in this analogy, that those are the scientists right now that are off trying to figure out a vaccine, trying to figure out if there's therapeutics, trying to figure out if there's treatments. And then at the same time, we had parallel teams working on how do we decrease the impact of the oil while the well is still gushing. So I don't know if you remember, but the the physical barriers that were put up along the Gulf Coast to stop oil and coming onto yeah. land, there were um, there were economic programs targeted at the fishing industry because you know fishing boats had to had to sit in port, right? Like shrimpers were losing money every day. So how do we support that industry, right? Um, um, vacation, right? The um, hospitality industry, which has been so hard hit by COVID was also hit very hard in the Gulf Coast. How do we support those people and how do we make sure that they're getting getting money during this period when they can't have, have vacationers, right? So, so if you use that analogy for COVID, you know, it's not a question of open or reopen, right? It's a question of, look, we're going to be living with this for a while. How do we, how do we mitigate the damage that it's doing and how do we get people back to work and back to school in ways that recognize the reality of the dangers that are posed by COVID-19? And, and look, again, I think this starts at the White House. That's the conversation I think we need to be having. That's the politically responsible conversation. And that's the conversation that this particular administration just seems um, to not want to have. The pandemic has become a partisan political issue, correct? Absolutely. However, are we still in a partisan world? Are we kind of in a post-partisan world in that, you know, I feel like you can be a conservative and still look at, you know, the, the current administration and say, this is beyond conservatism. There's something else going on. I try to dance around my language so often because I want to include everyone and I don't want to exclude anyone. It's part of being a musician. You know, what did Michael Jordan say? Um, Republicans buy sneakers too. Democrats buy sneakers. And the Avid brothers, we have been so blessed with a crowd that spans the uh, ideological spectrum. Um, I remember 2012 walking out on stage, you know, you, you see about five to 10 rows back uh, from the stage and seeing a guy in the third row with a don't tread on me, yellow, uh, it's the Gadsden flag, but now it rep- represents the Tea Party, represents uh, now conservatism and Trumpism. And then on the other side of the stage, there was a guy about three rows back with the Obama Hope shirt. You know, and, and I said, ah, oh, thank God, we are the neutral zone. We are the neutral zone. But I don't, and, and you know, full disclosure, 2015, I handed in my uh, Democratic uh, affiliation and I became an unaffiliated North Carolina voter. So, you know, I'm in the middle and I I see the Democratic Party that is fighting off the left, uh, the extreme left as, as hard as they can. And then I see a Republican Party who has fully bought into a cult of personality. So we can talk all day long about how we in this country have institutionalized disaster management and developed protocols that snap into place uh, the minute something terrible happens. But it seems like the federal government has been deconstructed largely. And uh, this falls on the states. So how do states 
do the job that the federal government once did. It seems like these Republican governors like Mike DeWine and Larry Hogan, to name a few, are are doing as good a job as they can are and are almost bucking their party in the cause of their own state. Yeah. So, you know, look, before I answer that question, just to take a step back, um, you know, look, you, you just have to look at my resume to know what my politics are. Um, you know, I, I worked on, as you noted at the top of the, the show, a number of uh, Democratic presidential campaigns. But I was then very lucky, you know, for those uh, of your listeners that don't know how this works, basically once, um, you know, one party or the other wins the White House, there's about 4,000 jobs across the government that are, are what we generally call political appointees, right? And so some of those are in the White House, some of those are out in the uh, in the departments and agencies, and I was really lucky and 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 you know through no strategy of my own uh, to get plopped down in a couple of the agencies and departments that traditionally have been seen as apolitical, right? Seen as having a bit of a moat around them, and 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 we at that time, and not just uh, under the Obama administration, this was a um, a tradition that spanned Republican and Democratic administrations. We saw our job as political appointees in those agencies, be it the Pentagon or FEMA, as, you know, sure, we were there to make sure that President Obama's um, platform was enacted, but we were also there to protect the agency from politics, right? We were the ones that could have those tough conversations with the White House. We were the ones that could say, look, this shouldn't be a political issue. Work with us on how we can avoid politicizing the military or politicizing disaster response. And that, that system works pretty well, right? And, and it's, you know, in many ways, and I don't think this is a partisan statement because I don't think it necessarily aligns with anything um, based on values or based on beliefs around conservatism or uh, liberalism. From a tactical standpoint, this White House has thrown that idea out the window, right? And, and it is sad to see the politicalization of places like the, the Department of Defense and disaster response, right? You know, to, if you take that idea that, um, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too, you know, COVID doesn't care, right? COVID doesn't care if you're Republican or conservative, right? And if you look, you know, the the manipulation of data and talking points to try to, you know, move a political agenda forward during this pandemic, it's just heartbreaking. I mean, you look, it's it's become so easy for people who want to score political points to say things like, well, look, not that many people are vulnerable to this, right? Well, you know, if you start looking across the board at pre-existing conditions, 49 million Americans are over 65. That's a lot of people, right? 10% of Americans suffer from some form of diabetes. And those are Republicans, Democrats, independents, and just the irresponsibility of trying to score political points. And this is, you know, political points from either party in a situation like this. It's really heartbreaking, right? So I'll so put that there. Uh, then to get to your question about governors, you know, I think the bright spot in this, like you said, is that you have seen governors of both parties stepping up and really taking on this mantle of leadership. So you've seen Governor Cuomo right down the street from where I am in New York. Um, you've seen Governor Murphy here in New Jersey, but you've also seen Governor DeWine in Ohio. Um, and, and I think, you know, what's interesting to me is the governors who have stepped up tend to be ones that have served in other um, positions in government in the past. So they've seen this work well before, right? So they've served in Congress when this worked well. They've served, um, uh, you know, Governor Cuomo was at HUD, who, interestingly enough, actually owns a lot of the recovery mission after um, after uh, major disasters. He's seen this work before. So, you know, I think where we're seeing success, they're taking lessons they learned at the federal government and trying to apply them at the state level. I think they're doing some of the things we talked about earlier. So clear communication 
communication. You know, I, I'm a communicator by trade. And, you know, one of the things we like is actionable communication. So it's great when you don't just have a message, but you get to ask people to do thing, right? The call to action. This is, there's never been a disaster where there's clear calls to action. I mean, every citizen has the power to impact how this thing goes right now. So I think using the bully pulpit in that way, people that have been successful have done that. And then just organizing the response. Um, and I think Cuomo has been a really good example of this, looking at it as, as a problem set. So what is the problem we have to solve today? So you know, we used to, um, you know, one of the things that my old boss Craig was so good at was this idea that every day we're going to have three priorities. So you would walk into the FEMA um, headquarters. Uh, there's a command center there. It sort of looks like something out of a movie, right? And there'd be a whiteboard at the front of the command center, and it would list the three things we were trying to get done that day. And I, I remember during Sandy, the top one for the first week was fuel. I don't know if you remember this, but gas shortages was the biggest thing. So, okay, we got to solve yes. that problem, right? So this isn't about trying to score points in the press or spin things. It's about we got to get fuel to people. And the minute we got fuel to people, our press got better, right? Like it really is amazing. If you focus on solving problems, people will come along with you. Their lived experience will will show that you've been successful. So we talked about the the federal response to disasters. We talked about the state response. You work at Princeton University currently. And I can tell you as the father of two uh, you know, grade school kids, we can't wait for school to start again around here. <laughs> but but we need it to start safely and we need to have some assurance that our kids are going to be safe and they're not going to bring something home that are going to impact you know, my wife and I for the pre-existing illnesses that we have. And, and of course, we don't want them to impact their grandparents or our, our elderly friends uh, who, are, who are definitely high risk. Talk a little bit about Princeton's plan for the fall of 2020. So we're planning. I mean, we're looking at this like everybody else right now. And, and we just earlier this week uh, kind of let our community know that we feel like we need to make a decision on having undergraduates back on campus by the first week of July. So we've set that out as, as our kind of drop dead date. And, you know, as, as I'm sure you appreciate, there's a number of complexities, both to having students back on campus, even under normal circumstances, much less in a pandemic. There's a lot of complexities to having them off campus. Right. So, um, you know, we need to be prepared preparing for that world as well. You know, our, our number one kind of North Star through this uh, process has been start with what's right to do from a public health perspective and then work backwards. So, you know, we're very lucky at a place like Princeton, you know, uh, in the state of North Carolina, you have some amazing universities that, that also have these advantages. We have virologists on campus. We have people that study these issues. So we're, we have some of the smartest people in academia in the room with us as we're, well, in the virtual room with us uh, as we're trying to work through these problems. And so if we start with the idea that um, public health is our number one concern, keeping our, our students and our faculty and staff, right? So, you know, we have a population, it's easy to say, uh, well, 18 to 22 year olds, they're not, uh, you know, the high risk group. Well, a lot of our professors are, a lot of our food services workers are, mm -hmm. a lot of the folks they interact with are, are in high risk categories. Um, so if we start with how do we protect people and work backwards, then it becomes questions really quickly that are very practical. So how do you house everybody? How do you feed everybody? How do you congregate in classrooms um, uh, that aren't designed for spacing out, right? These many of our, our infrastructure in some cases is over 200 years old in a place like Princeton. So we definitely don't have flexible classrooms, right? So we're trying to look at it in terms of a set of practical problems that will lead us to what the right decision is for the university. And I think you're gonna see colleges and universities because they're also different, have very different approaches to this when everything's said and done. 
That being said, we're also trying to prepare our students and our faculty and staff for this idea that no matter what happens in the fall, it's not going to look like it looked on campus three months ago, right? So this isn't a binary choice. Having people back on campus will still look very different than it looked before COVID-19. And we're gonna, it's gonna look different until we get to capping that well, right? Until we get to a vaccine or until we get to therapeutics or interventions uh, on the medical side. And we need to do things in a responsible way to give the scientific community and the medical community time to figure that out, right? So, so we don't know exactly what that's all gonna look like. We're gonna let people know in July. Um, you know, I, I will say, there are very few times that I get to say that uh, Princeton University is a lot like your band, but um, you know we, we both, in many ways, uh, exist in industries that I think felt COVID first, right? So yeah, you know we depend on personal interaction, just like you guys do, right? Like yes. our whole model is get a bunch of smart people together, have them interact, spend time informally, um, you know, be in groups, right? Have that experience that that's, it's not, college isn't just about sitting on a, a screen uh, or over a, an audio line like we are now and getting information. It's about that learning process that can only take place in person. Um, it, just like you guys, it's not just about making records and putting it out. It's about that, that collective experience. So I try to be as hopeful as I can, but you also have to be realistic. The industries that felt at first will probably be some of the last ones to come back online, right? Because we have the hardest problem set. How do you replicate that in-person intimate experience in a, in a world that depends on things like social distancing? I spoke with someone who works at a world-class medical facility, um, not in North Carolina or New Jersey, a few weeks ago, and she said everyone at that facility is tested four times a week. Yeah. They have a young population of uh, patients, and n none of them, as of the time I spoke with her, had contracted COVID. And that kind of surveillance, to me, that's what I want for the teachers at my children's elementary school, which is very unlikely, because I spoke to another medical professional who works at an, a different facility, and they haven't tested anyone unless they had symptoms. And I feel like this testing now, the administration press secretary yesterday said, well, why, why test so often if they can get the disease five minutes later after they were tested? Well, of course, but if you're testing, you know, every couple of days, and you find someone who is positive, you can isolate them from the population and mitigate the spread of the disease. You know, uh, a couple thoughts here, Brent. One is, as you're talking about Princeton, uh, I can't help but think about Jonathan Edwards and uh, John Witherspoon and uh, Woodrow Wilson and thinking, man, we need to do a history of Princeton University some sometime of all the amazing people, James Madison, the people who walked uh, walked the ground that you walk now every day. Uh, just it must be incredible for you to um, to you know work at Princeton University. Yeah, I mean, well, you'll you'll appreciate this. Um, uh, I think most people appreciate this. When I was 18 years old, the idea of going to a place like Princeton would have been like going to the moon. Uh, I was I was lucky to go to a state school and 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 proud of my degree. And um, but it is an amazing thing to get to go to to work every day at a place where just you know look some of the smartest and nicest people you're ever going to want to work with. And in a sense of uh, you know like you, I'm someone who really loves history. The building my office is in actually um, James Madison lived in it at one point, which is kind of crazy, right? Uh, you know. 
know, the college at one point was literally one building. So my office is on the third floor, which was the dorm. So I'm sure it looked very different, but, but he slept somewhere near where I like put my coffee every day, which is kind of nuts. But, but, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, something that you just made me think of when you talk about different school systems and, and different t- hospitals and testing regimes, you know, this is one of the other reasons it's important for the federal government to step up and really get aggressive on some things like testing and testing distribution, not just because they have the, the capability and power to, to help distribute things uh, and help produce things, but also because if they don't do it, we're going to see more and more inequality across the country in how things are handled. And, and this idea that I think comes up time and again in disaster response is that you know many of the, the things we see in disasters aren't new problems. They're just problems that are so much more brought into relief by the immediacy of a disaster. So you know we have problems in this country that we need to deal with, with income inequality, educational opportunities. Those things are just going to get worse, right? So if the federal government and the state's gov- governments don't start stepping in and saying, look, we're going to require all schools to test and we're going to make sure that you have the capability and the access to tests that you need, you're going to see rich school districts being able to do one set of pro- protocols that poor school districts can, right? And that's a real problem because that's just going to exacerbate inequalities that already exist. And, and that's one of my big concerns, right? At a certain point, um, when resources start to become the issue, those that have resources will be able to manage this in a way. And you're already seeing that, right? You're already seeing that in terms of the distribution of people that are getting sick and people that are able to get access to the healthcare they need when they are sick. When we talk about these disparities in services uh, and you think about how maybe a New York state has handled it uh, under Governor Cuomo versus uh, Brian Kemp in Georgia, when I look at Georgia and Texas, and reopening in Tennessee, it makes me think, and there are so many racial connotations to this, and I don't, I'm not meaning it in this, in these racial terms, but it reminds me of the Confederacy, the old Confederacy, where it's a refusal to work together, right? You have, you have New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, I don't know, maybe Rhode Island, maybe Delaware that are working together right? As far as reopening. Out West, you have a similar scenario with California, Washington State, Oregon, I believe, states that are working together. And then you have states that are going it alone. And by golly, what happens in South Carolina with their opening, which they never even really closed, is going to impact us here in North Carolina. And I remember reading about the Civil War, Jefferson Davis and the Confederacy, they needed more uniforms. So they went to individual Confederate states and said, hey, can you help us with resources for the Confederate army? And they said, no, these are for us. And that's like the epitome of what a Confederacy are. And it seems like if you take Steve Bannon seriously uh, at CPAC in twenty in the January of 2017, it, when he said, you know, our goal is to deconstruct the administrative state, it seems like the Trump administration has done a great job at doing away with federalism. Yeah, I think that's right. And and look, I mean, if you look, you know, not just in the context of the Civil War, but, you know, in many ways, the history of our country is this tension between kind of the pioneer individualist, 
go it alone, you know, individual rights and the power of the collective, right? This idea that by pulling together, we can, we can solve great problems. And, and unfortunately, you know, this is a collective problem, right? Like you said, the actions of one individual will impact their entire community and communities outside of their community, right? So, so this is one, and again, this is where leadership matters so much. Um, and the power of the bully pulpit is a very real thing. If you had leadership that was pushing people in the direction of that, that very real and very American um, history of pulling together, doing things for the greater good, sacrificing for your community versus pushing towards that also very American history of individualism, leave me alone, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's a live fire experiment right now on how states approach these things, right? We're going to actually see what happens in a Georgia versus what happens in a New York. Uh, and it's it's two very different models. And, you know, I'm, I'm afraid if you look at if you go back to the science and you go back to the experts, they're going to tell you that the path that's being chosen in some of these states uh, to reopen uh, too aggressively when there's still um, you know, upward trend lines and there's not therapeutics, it's going to cost people's lives. And, and you know, again, you know, I, I know one of the things I really love about the work that you do on this and your other podcasts is that intersection of kind of politics and fact. And, you know, the politics of this long term, I think are going to be very bad for those people that are doing the short term political thing of pushing for reopening, because people's lived experiences eventually catch up, right? And if you do start to see negative impacts in these states, you know, someone's going to be held responsible for them. Uh, and ultimately, I think it's going to be the governors that are making these decisions. At some point, the truth comes true. But does it happen in a post fact world? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, um, you know, I, 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 you know, maybe this is just what allows me to sleep at night, but I honestly believe that, you know, everybody gets theirs both good and bad. Eventually, sometimes it just takes a lot longer than you'd like it to. Right. So, uh, and that tends to be true in politics too. So, um, so we'll see. Um, but, but again, I think we're in uncharted territory, both, uh, with this pandemic and in politics right now. So, you know, I, I, I will tell you, um, you know, the one thing I always say to people when they ask me, uh, you know, what do I think about politics? Because I used to work on political campaigns is me and every single one of my counterparts were wrong in 2016. So I'll tell you what I think, but you should probably take it with a pretty big grain of salt at this point. Brent Coburn, thank you so much for being on the Politics of Truth. Thank you, Bob. And thank you for continuing to do this stuff. I know it's it's hard when you have everything else going on and just wishing the best to you and, and your family and everyone associated with the band and everybody in North Carolina. I hope folks stay safe. Thank you. And uh, the same to you guys up up my uh, stomping grounds of Jersey. Next round's on me. Okay, man, we'll get you up here as soon as people can travel and it's safe. We'll get you up to Princeton. It'll be great. It'll be great. Thanks. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit osirispod.com. <laughs>